Anybody ever run out of food at an event they have hosted? Any, any show of hands? Anybody ever had that happen where they're like, oh no, there is not enough food to go around? I don't, Esther, no, you don't, no. She's awesome. Her food is awesome. I've, I've had that fear. I've had that tremendous fear, specifically here at Park, when we do events, when we do things like the summer picnics. I'm like, oh no, we're going to run out of food. And we always have enough. In fact, I've, on staff, they've come to know that we always have more than enough because I have that fear. But it's a fear, right? Sometimes you're like, oh no, how many people are coming? How much food do I have to get? I have that fear. Maybe you have that fear at times when you're serving um, with teenagers, doing youth ministry. You always get more than enough because they love to eat. Um, and so that's just a fact. Uh, and I have that big fear of running out of food. This text I think was written for me because it's a story about running out of something. It's a story about Jesus turning water into wine when they ran out. So turn to John 2. John chapter 2 in your Bibles. There's a pew hymnal in front of you. If we had a slide, the page number would be up there. I think it's 800-something, if I remember. 887, I was kind of not really close. Thank you. 887 in the Pew Bible. Uh, John chapter 2, 1 through 12 is what we're going to read. If you're able to stand with me, let's read it together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now, it had become wine. The water now become wine and did not, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. You can have a seat. So if you're taking notes or if you take out the little note card in the pew, here's the outline that we have this morning. Just so you know, I did borrow this outline, at least a couple points, because I thought it was really good. So part of this is is borrowed from a great scholar, Warren Wearsby. 
So full disclosure, but I think the outline is fantastic for where we're going this morning. So point number one, write down Jesus the guest. Jesus the guest. And that we find in verses one and two. Jesus the guest. Second point we'll look at this morning is Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son. That's found in verses 3 through 5. The third point we'll look at is Jesus the host. Jesus the host, verses 6 through 10. And then finally, we'll look at Jesus the Savior, verse 11. One of the things that I want to just talk through real quickly before we dig into the text is as I studied the past couple weeks on this text, sometimes you hear this text with the issue of alcohol. I don't believe that this passage or story is about alcohol. I believe it's more about what Jesus is doing. So I just want to give that disclaimer here. So as we dig in, let's look at the first point. Jesus the guest, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana and Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding in Cana and Galilee. Where is Cana at? Um, you'll see on the map. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> So if you Google where Cana of Galilee is, you'll see a picture. It's probably located north of Nazareth, is what a lot of the scholars have thought. You see, it's not located anywhere now, so we can't actually go to Cana, the city, and, and, and like visit it. And so that's why they're guessing where was this uh, small village located at? And what we think is it's probably located about seven to nine miles north of Nazareth in a town that was Kerbeth Kwana. Um, so that's about what we think. And, and um, if you Google it, you can kind of look at Cana of Galilee, Galilee, where is it located? To the west of uh, Sea of Galilee in that region. Okay, so how big was Cana? What is this context? What are we looking at the size of this city? It's fairly small, actually, in context. Probably roughly between 100 to 500 is what scholars were, were thinking. Um, there are larger towns in this area, such as Bethsaida, probably had two to 3,000 people, or even larger was Tiberias, which had eight to 12,000. So Cana of Galilee is small. We're gonna have an estimate of less than 1,000 people, just to be pro, you know, looking at how big that was, but most likely it was right around that 500. So um, you're, you're not looking at a large, large city. But in the context of this wedding, what we see is a lot of the city was invited. So there may have been a lot of people at this wedding event. What was the area like here as we look and study the background? The Beth Natufa Valley of Cana had very fertile soil. It, it, its main crops were wheat, olives, and grapes. 
So grapes were the primary uh, profit uh, for that area, which is very interesting to our story. So Jesus and the disciples, along with his mother, Mary, were all invited to the wedding. They walked a half day, as we see, eight to ten miles up to this from their hometown of Nazareth. Um, A few interesting facts about just the context of Cana is uh, Nathaniel, who Jesus just called to be his disciple in chapter 1, was from Cana. And so it might have been a relative of Nathaniel's, we don't know, but it, it most likely being that they were invited and went that distance as they knew the bride and groom or their family, okay? So there was a personal connection there. Uh, John says on the third day there was a wedding, verse 1, and what is the significance? Why would John say third day here in verse 1? Most likely it doesn't have anything to do with the wedding. It has, uh, because what we see with weddings back in the Jewish culture is they're seven days long. And, and that's a lot of food and, and wine to, to go with. As you can see, there's, there's a pressure there of providing. So according to Jewish law, virgins were to be married on a Wednesday. Widows were to be married on a Thursday. So most likely this wedding took place on a Wednesday. Um, third day, actually, what the scholars say is according to when Jesus called Nathaniel, the third day after that. So it's John's going according to Jesus's ministry schedule here on the third day, which is to me kind of interesting. I, I would have thought it was maybe uh, uh, according to the wedding or something with that. And the scholars say it's his ministry schedule. It's the third day after Jesus called Nathaniel to be a disciple. So that is one, point number one. Uh, point number two, Jesus the Son, if we look at three through five there, it says, when the wine ran, ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, Mary says. So the wedding celebration is happening. It's going along. All of a sudden, something horrific happens here. They ran out of wine. Well, Kyle, why why is this such a big deal? They ran out of wine. Come on. The big deal is this is basically in that culture in the Jewish day, basically social suicide. It's going to be a shunning, embarrassing event for that family, for that couple, for a lifetime. It's not like today. So when they ran out, if it was going to be cast to the whole crowd, this would have been something they would have been known for for the rest of their lives, which is very interesting. So, and it kind of ties into where Jesus goes with this, okay? Um, It was a huge deal to run out. Uh, I don't have that fear here at Park. If we run out of something, I don't think my job is in jeopardy or you're going to, like, shun me. Hopefully not. <laughs> but we, we can go to the store. We can figure things out. Um, and so it's a little bit different for us in our context versus where it was, what it was like for them. Interesting other note here as we look at this text John addresses Mary as the mother of Jesus. 
not by her name. Why is that? Some might say it might take the emphasis off her role in the story. Um, You know, she didn't actually tell Jesus what to do. She's just reporting the problem to Jesus. She didn't say, Jesus, do something. But some commentators say she does play an important role in this wedding. They, They think maybe that Mary had a background role. Like, we've had weddings, we've had different events, and you have, like, the kitchen crew. You have, like, those background people. We don't know, but it seems to be Mary had an insight in the wine was almost out or running out. So there's some sort of inside information that Mary possesses here. Um, One of the things that we see with uh, the running out of wine is it could be that the family just didn't have enough money to provide enough for the whole week or the festivities. We do not know. So again, that goes back to the point of the embarrassment of the situation. That would have been very shaming. That would have been um, a big deal for the family. It's expensive to do a wedding in our day and back then, right? I don't know if you've ever been a part of a wedding. I've had one daughter that's gotten married, and it's not cheap no matter how you do it. Um, You have to pay for food and drink. There's all the tuxes and the dresses. There's the DJs, photographers, videographers, the venue. All those things add up. And it was probably no different in that day and age when they were having this wedding celebration, this feast. And so to run out was a big deal. A lot of money was spent. So what is the response of Jesus here in this text? Verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, Jesus says. Uh, Jesus is addressing his mother as woman, again, does not call her Mary or mother. Uh, and, And it's interesting because John kind of bookends Mary here. Here we have her addressed as woman, and we see it one other time. If you flip to John 19, 26, at the cross, he addresses, Jesus addresses her as woman. So it's very interesting as you look at the context, it's not a disgraceful thing. It's not a, it's not a thing, it's just a, a more of a polite, correct way of addressing her in that time. And so we see this address and the bookends of John. It also points to that Jesus is no longer under any sort of authority of his, his parents. He's under the authority of his heavenly father. <laughs> okay, I'm a, I'm a dad as I was thinking about this text. You know, one of the things that came up recently, this is being live streamed, I have to be careful, but one of my daughters, won't say who, she said, Dad, I'm 20-something. I'm an adult. And I said, oh, yes. Yes, I know. I don't know if you parents are out there, but sometimes it's hard when when your kids are growing up. I don't think that's a situation that happened here. But my own personal uh, relationship with my kids went to that point of it's hard to let go at times. So that's not the case. Um, Warren Wearsby in his commentary said, Jesus seems to reply a bit abrupt and even harsh here. But it seems that's not the case. Woman was a polite way to address her. And the statement uh, merely, 
merely states, why are you getting me involved in this matter? Why are you getting me involved in this matter? That's basically the response that Jesus has, has come back with. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. And I think um, Craig Keener, thank you, Matt, wherever you are. Uh, Craig Keener is a great scholar who, Matt, go listen to the podcast. He got me uh, onto. Uh, Craig Keener is a great scholar with Jewish history, says the primary reason for rebuff must be that his mother does not understand what this sign will cost Jesus. His, the primary reason for the rebuff is that his mother does not understand what the sign will cost Jesus. It starts with him on the road to his hour of the cross. So basically what, what Craig Keener is saying here is, is this sign now Jesus fully understands will start the timetable of his ministry and his time to the cross. And so this inner change here is basically Jesus understanding what will happen if he performs this sign, and we're not sure if Mary fully understands that. Now, as we look at the rest of the text, the story unfolds. Walk with me in point number three, Jesus the host. Here we see what happens. Verse six, now there was Six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now had become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, whoa, everyone serves the good wine first, but wait. When the people have drunk freely the poor wine, you have kept the good wine until now. Way to go. So Jesus here performs this miracle. Everything goes on as planned. Even so, they, they brought out the good wine. You know, it, it was, it was a more of a celebration. It was a great thing that had happened. Well, as we look at this a little bit more, there's... Uh, there's six big jars, okay? Um, how much water was that? I, I love to like dig in and understand more of the context. Uh, so if you, it's six stone pots. It's about each one of these jugs was about 20 to 30, 30 gallons each, it says. 20 to 30 gallons. So if you go around, park here, we have those water jugs, right? Um, that's about four to six of those five-gallon water jugs, just for one. And if you go to the whole six of them, it would take 24 to 36 of those five-gallon water jugs we have. So stack up 24 of those, that's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. So that's just um, kind of the estimate that they have there of of what we have for the water. They used these pots for ceremonial washings. These jugs, these pots, were not for drinking, but they were for ceremonial washings. And it was a ritual purification rite by the Jews. In Mark 7, if you, if you take a note of Mark 7, 1 through 5, we have that story of the Pharisees calling Jesus and the disciples out for not washing their hands before the meal. So here we see that kind of ritual in observation in this text of Mark 7, where they say, you didn't wash your hands. 
So we know that those jugs were for the kind of the washing of hands. So Jesus says, take these jugs, fill them up with water to the brim, and then Jesus does the miracle with it. He turns it into really good wine. I just love that. I love that because Jesus doesn't just do ordinary. Think about that. Jesus could have just made, eh, okay wine. It was extraordinary wine. It was amazing. The, the head of the feast uh, person that they brought it to said, this is, you saved the best for last. And that's where it's like, compare that to what Jesus does for us. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. And I think he has the best laid out for us. Amen? So here we see him making this really good wine. If you poured it all, I, again, I go back to trying to visualize it. One of the commentators said, if you poured it all out, the wine that would have been there, 2,000 four-ounce wine glasses. 2,000 four-ounce wine glasses would have been poured. That's quite a bit. Quite a bit there. Um, so a couple thoughts on this, on this miracle that happened that I was kind of thinking through, just to give you. In that moment, in that moment, the servants obey. In that moment, Jesus turned water into wine. He doesn't touch it. We don't think. doesn't say he does. He just, only his command, only by his commands, in other words, go fill it up and then take it to the headmaster, were his commands. And in that time frame, the headmaster tastes it and it's beautiful, good wine. So in that was this miracle. Does the water change color? We don't know. It doesn't say. But I'm assuming it did. I'm assuming to those behind the scenes, the disciples, to Mary, to the servants, they fully saw everything that happened here. And that's the beauty of this miracle here that Jesus did. It was for specific people. The disciples, the servants, for his mother Mary, and for the family. So, Jesus the Savior. As we look at verse 11, this is the first his signs that Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory. This was the first sign, him starting out with the signs to come. This is a sign that points to something beyond himself. It is something greater. It is him revealing himself to the disciples as him being the Son of God. It is Jesus having compassion for this family and providing for them. And it is a, it's a miracle and a sign that goes mainly unnoticed. You see, the crowd, the audience, those in participation, they didn't know. They, were, they received more wine, and it was good. So it mainly went unnoticed here. And it's interesting, if we look back in chapter 1, 
verse 10, if you just turn back there, John alludes to somewhat of the unnoticed of Jesus. He said, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. So some commentators point to that, yeah, it went totally unnoticed because that's the way that God set it up. The, the miracle reveals and manifests Jesus' glory. It's for us. It's for us. If you turn four verses later, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So here Jesus does this sign, and his disciples who were called by him a few days before see the first miracle. They see the first miracle, and they believe. They believe. Jesus here turns emptiness into extravagance. All right, let's just wrap this up with a few things here. We need to observe the servants and disciples' reaction, number one. They obey. They obey what Jesus said. The servants here do, did whatever Jesus told them to do. And the question this morning in my heart is, am I obeying everything Jesus is telling me to do? Because that's what Mary said. Do whatever he tells you to do. It's this idea of pistos, what Andrew has been talking about, the belief that is mentioned many, many times in John. Number two, this illustrates a great concern for us for non-life-threatening issues. I mean, if, if he cares enough to provide this for the family, how much more does God care for us in the ordinary? It's just a beautiful thing when I thought through it. I'm like, he didn't have to do that. He could have allowed that family to be shamed. They could have went back home. But Jesus, in his compassion and care, stepped in. Now, in that, I believe we need to understand this key thing is, is God is not a vending machine. We cannot pray and expect God to move in ways that we want. We just can't. God does what he does, but understand that he cares for us. He deeply cares for us. And then, one of the things that I love about this passage is it brings joy. It represents joy. The wine here represents joy. Uh, scholar Craig Blomberg says, wine was widely considered as a gift of gladness and rejoicing from God. A gift of gladness and rejoicing from God. We look at Psalm 104, 15. It says, in wine to gladden the heart of man. Joy. Joy overflows us. 
Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy comes with our relationship with the Lord. 1 Peter 1.8 1 Peter 1.8, write that one down. It says this, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I love that verse. They believe and rejoice in joy. That is what Jesus represents for us. Let me close with this quote from scholar N.T. Wright. The transformation of water to wine, of course, meant by John to signify the effect that Jesus can have, can still have today on people's lives. He came, as it says later, that we may have life in all of its fullness, John 10.10. You might want to pray through this story with your own failures and disappointments in mind. Remembering that transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously. Do whatever he tells you. What is Jesus telling you to do this morning? What is he wanting you to do for a deeper belief, depth, and joy? That is the conviction that I have this morning in my own life. As I move further with Jesus, I pray that for you as well. Will you bow with me as we pray and then move into a time of communion? And for the communion, as we do each week, come on up, up the center and go out the rows and there's some in the back. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for this miracle. Thank you for the ordinary, the, the care that it was done so that the disciples would believe. We thank you for the obedience of the servants. Father, this morning, as we listen to your word, as we process our relationship with you, I don't know where everybody is, Father, but you do. Would you allow us, as we go to the table now, the communion table, to respond to that question, Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Father, would you instruct us by your Holy Spirit in how we are to move forward this morning. We love you and we worship you now. Amen.